Hey Church of the Beloved, my name is Kevin Zo and I'm the production manager here at COTV. Just wanted to say a quick thanks for tuning in to our weekly sermon podcast. This week's message is brought to us by our interim senior pastor, Abe Lee. He is preaching from the book of Malachi. There is uh, really, if you're not aware of this, and some people might be listening from far away, Today is the Chicago Marathon. That's why we're starting an hour later. And there are, I'm learning, a lot of crazy people in our church who like to run. So to all of you all who are running, uh, I don't know all everybody. I do know a few folks. I think Jeremy Lai, who is part of our uh, pastoral search committee, Joe Chen, a former elder here. Um, Rachel is a new person who started joining her boyfriend's running. Corey, um, I don't know who else. Uh, more power to you. Good luck. Survive. And if you're actually listening to us live while you're running, wow, that's impressive. Come on down uh, after you're finished running, and we'd love to see you and uh, buy you a drink. I'm sure you're going to need it, um, or at least some water for you. But everyone else, we're, we're going to dive into this last book of uh, the Minor Prophets. Okay, so we're looking at Malachi today. Now, Suzette and I, we just hosted some friends uh, last week, and they had with them their two-year-old child, their daughter, and they were in our home last weekend. Some of you might have met her. She's a very cute little girl, very inquisitive. She, she had this very active mind and, and very active fingers. She had to touch and press everything around the house. And one thing I got a chance to witness firsthand, I've heard about this all the time, is you, I got to see how kids really love to ask questions. You know, like, why? How come? What's that? Uh, and, and as I was reading Malachi to prepare for today, and I was, I felt like I was reading the words of a little child, because there are so many questions being lifted up, or maybe almost pestering to God. You know, they, they ask questions like, how have you loved us? How, how have we despised you? How have we polluted you? Why doesn't God like my offering? How have we wearied you, God? How have we spoken against you, God? How have we robbed you, God? There's so many questions in this book and so little knowledge. But God's patient. And not only does he take the time to, to answer their questions, but he also points out is through their questions and through his responses, he points out that there's something so much better coming. So what I want to do today is I want to take some time to look at those questions that the Israelites lifted up and see how God responded to them. Because I feel like some of these questions might be questions we have as well. Now, as per usual, what I like to do is give a bit of context. And so Contextually, Malachi is the last of the minor prophets, but he's the second to last prophet of the Old Covenant. Now, prophets of the Old Covenant, or the law, they were the ones who were responsible for for foretelling the coming of the Savior of the world, of Christ. The honor of that distinction, being the last prophet of the Old Covenant, that, the one that not only foretold of the coming of the Messiah, but would also be able to say, hey, there is, the, there is the Messiah himself, was John the Baptist. So he was the last prophet. But regardless, Malachi was the last of the minor prophets. And after Malachi, there's 400 years of silence, a period of no more biblical revelations from God about the coming of the Messiah. But whole lot actually happened in preparation for the Christ. 
In other words, uh, the world did not go into a holding pattern unlike ours did, seemed to last year when we're looking for a vaccine. But during their 400 years, a bunch of nations decided to basically take turns controlling Israel. First, the Syrians conquered Israel, then the Greeks conquered Israel, then the Seleucids conquered Israel, finally the Romans conquered Israel. And then Israel, basically, they were never a free nation again until after all that happened. So 400 years of subjugation. And during this time, it was also when the law or what we know as the Old Testament, is translated from Hebrew into Greek. And the translation is known as the Septuagint. And this translation became the most widespread version and basically gave access to the law, to Scripture, to a lot more people. To just get nerdy for a moment, the Septuagint, it's not like our Old Testament, but basically it's the name given to the Greek manuscripts. It's a collection of them. And this served as the very first translation from Hebrew, which was a dying language at the time. And the Septuagint is so vital to us understanding the New Testament. It's, it's that version, that Greek translation, that's often the one that's quoted in the New Testament. So we had 400 years of silence, but it wasn't 400 years of stagnation. There was activity happening. Because it was also during this time that there was a guy, his name was Judas Maccabeus, or of the Maccabees. He fought against Antichus Epiphanes of the Seleucid Empire. All these names doesn't really matter, but basically they fought to reclaim the temple of God. And during that war, during that battle, there was a miracle that happened in that temple. A lamp that only had enough oil for one day stayed lit for eight. And there comes the tradition of Hanukkah, or the festival of lights. That happened during those 400 years. And also during those 400 years, you had the new religious sects come up. So basically the Sadducees, they're pro-Hellenists. They were the more liberal Jews came on the scene. And then you also had the, the Pharisees who were more pro-law. They were almost to the point of forgetting that they're supposed to be merciful. They're supposed to be caring. But anyway, these two groups became the predominant religious sects of the day. You've probably heard of them. And the Sadducees and the Pharisees, they created a new ruling structure called the Sanhedrin. So those 400 years after Malachi, they were setting the stage for Jesus in the start of the fulfillment of the work of the Messiah. As we look at the words of Malachi, and we consider this time that came after Malachi, you realize that this was basically God's send-off message. God had planned from the very beginning to not have any updates come for four centuries. He wasn't going to be gone. Just no more direct communication through prophets or oracles or anything like that. God knew that this was going to be the last message. And he was going to send it to the people of Israel before sending John the Baptist. But, and if you read Malachi, by the way, there is reference to John the Baptist coming. But he was going to send this last message to the people of Israel. And i got to emphasize this. God was not sending a message because he's going away. He still loved his beloved. And he wanted those he chose to draw near to him to draw near. Just no more prophecies. At least for 400 years. And as I was looking at this and considering this, whenever I do a wedding ceremony, uh, one of the things I do is I include a wedding charge, which are the final words of 
quote-unquote wisdom, hopefully, uh, to, to share with the couple as they prepare for, you know, a joyous journey of matrimony. And I try to take a lot of care, a lot of time to craft a message that is going to be appropriate and relevant for the couple, knowledge to help them in their journey as husband and wife. And the thing is, if I take the time, which I'm just a guy, I'm just a mere mortal, if I take the time to consider these last parting words, this charge, and I'm not going anywhere, how much more are God's last words prior to a 400 years of silence, how much more significant are those going to be? So I think taking a time to look at these final words from God through these questions that Israel, his responses to their questions, I think can be very, very beneficial. And the first one we have is, how have you loved us? That's the first question. I want to read to you from verses 2 and 3. It says, I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet, I've loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I've laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. See, from the very start, God proclaims his love for the people of Israel. And I was thinking about this. There's Yuji, who's our director of operations, or as I like to say, D.O., because she does everything. She recently shared a story with me about her dad. And I got permission to share this. The very first time that her father independently and without prompting told her, I love you, was to her answering machine when she was in college. Now, for those of you who don't know, an answering machine is a device that's connected to a landline that records messages. And so for those of you who don't know, a landline is a phone that's tethered to a wall or attached anyway. So this is the message. He calls and says, Yujia, I miss you. I love you. And her reaction to that was, what? And she had to listen to it again and again, and she re really wishes that she could find a way to keep that recording, but it's gone now. God left a message just like that to Israel. But the reaction of the Israelites was exactly the opposite. Their reaction was, really? How, God? How do you love us? And, and I got to think about this. I mean, initially I was like, wow. But I actually don't blame them for their reaction. Because if you've ever been in a place where everything seems to be going wrong, Israel is a part of a nation of people that's been handpicked by God to bring blessing to the entire world and to whom God promised a land of milk and honey and all they got was subjugation, taxation. All they got was oppression. The rich were getting richer. The poor were getting poorer. Social injustice what was the norm. It was not the exception. The vulnerable were regularly being taken advantage of. Life sucked. So I actually get why Israel asked that question. How do you love us, God? And God responds to them by giving them some perspective. He says, hey, look at Esau's kids, Edom, right? Honestly, Jacob, he did not deserve my love. He did not to be, deserve to be chosen. Esau didn't do anything wrong, but God chose Jacob. God chose the people of Israel. And today, God chooses you. See, God's decision to love me and you is in spite of you and me. And though it may not feel like it all the time right now, though you may be struggling with doubts or angst or anger, issues, trauma, that love is there. And he promises that it will never go away. There may be 400 years of silence coming, but God's love was with them and is with us. 
is with his chosen, with his beloved right now. In verse 5, he reminds them, your own eyes shall see this, and you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. That's the promise of God's love to them, and that's the promise of God's love to you and to me. The next question is in verse 6. It says, how have we despised you? Let me read from verse 6. It says, a son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? If I'm a master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests, who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? I want to keep on reading from verse 8. This is God's answer to them. He says, when you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor, and will he accept you or, or, or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts. And I watched um, Zootopia for the first time. The things you're allowed to do when you have kids staying over at your house is awesome. Um, uh, but I watched this movie, and there's a scene in this movie, and you have an assistant mayor who happens to be a sheep. And this sheep's office is in the boiler room, right? And, and there's, it zooms in on a gift from the mayor who is a, a lion, and, and it's a used mug. And on this mug, it, it's written, world's greatest dad. But dad is crossed out, and someone wrote, obviously, the mayor did, uh, world's greatest assistant mayor, right? This secondhand gift is, at best, clearly exemplifying the worth attributed to this sheep assistant mayor by the lion mayor. When they ask, how have we despised you? God's response is this, by giving me not your best, by giving me the dregs, by saying, hey, here's what I have left over, God. You can have all of that. I've taken care of the stuff I want to and I need to take care of. You can have the spare. Verse 13 and 14, it says this, in response to that re God's response. But you say, what a weirdness this is, and you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what has been taken by violence or is lame or sick, and this you bring as your offering. Shall I accept that from your hand, says the Lord? Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. The reaction of the people of Israel to God's explanation of what they were doing wrong was, whatever. What's the big deal? Their reaction is they're thinking that, you know, I'm giving God something. He should be fine, right? He's, he's invisible anyway. I can't see him. How big a deal could it be? But it is. It is absolutely a big deal. And it's not a big deal because of what they brought to the table. It's a big deal because of the heart at the table. See, he says, cursed be the cheat. Cursed be the person who says, yeah, God, you can have my best, and, and commits to it, and then turns around and gives their worst, gives their not best. 
Because we're called to give our best to the God of heaven, to the creator of the universe, whether it's, whether it's financially or in our resources or in our time or in our ability to come together, get out of our sweatpants and put on real clothes, meet people face to face. We are called to give our best, not because God needs it, not even because God wants it, but it's because God knows that giving our best to him is how we demonstrate our love for him. Just as he gave his best for us, he gave his son who knew no sin yet became sin so that we can become righteous. Just as God gave and just as God constantly gives his best for his beloved, that's what we're called to do. How have we despised you? You despise him by deciding that I'm more important. What I want is more important by deciding that others are not significant, by deciding that giving God second, third, last, best is okay. The next question that they ask that's related to this, it goes a little deeper into that whole thing, is why doesn't God like my offering? Okay? And to get the full context of that question that Israel is asking, I want to read to you chapter 2, starting with verse 10. Going to verse 16, this is what it says. Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Judah has been faithless, and abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. And, and the second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why, why does he not? Because the Lord was witnesses, witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless. Though she is your companion and your wife by covenant, did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, says the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. God, God doesn't like or accept the ingenuous offering of the people of Israel because it's not coming from transformed hearts. See, the parting words from God they, they're pointing something out here. They're pointing out how big a deal marriage is as a part of life. And, and that we need to treat marriage with the seriousness that God has designed it to be. The, the person you marry, if you end up getting married, not everyone does, but if you marry, the person you marry is an indication of where your heart is at. The transformation that being spirit-filled disciples who know that they are the beloved of God because of Christ alone, that transformation can be evidenced by this decision. Now, I want to be clear. 
God is saying that he doesn't like the offerings being given because of who the Israelites were, were marrying. It's not an issue of race. It's not an issue of ethnicity. It was and continues to be an issue of faith. Okay? The people of Israel who were marrying people who did not love God. Judah was marrying the daughter of a foreign god. And there's example after example of people throughout the Bible, like Solomon, for example, who end up marrying people who worship someone other than the one true God, and the results are disastrous. Now, uh, I have to admit something here. When Suzette and I got married, she was not a Christian. I married the daughter of a foreign god. Not that I was in any way a godly man. I wasn't. I was far from it. But I had enough knowledge of who God was and is to know that this was going against God. And there were a lot of people in our lives that decided that they would boycott our wedding as a result, including my mom, because of that decision. Now, I'm not going to get into the details of it all. But that journey that we started together, thankfully, eventually brought Suzette and I both together into a faith journey that is challenging, but it is still beautiful. Because now, thank God, we both love Jesus. But if you were to ask us if we think missionary dating is a good idea, whether you should flirt to convert, I'll tell you, probably not. Because the truth of the matter is this, it's hard. It's very hard very hard. But I understand. I understand why people do it. I've had conversations after conversation with singles seeking somebody to, to be with. I hear people say, oh, there's no one out there anymore. All the good people, yeah, I know, I'm taken already. All the good people are gone. You know, Christian guys are so clueless. Christian women, they have no interest in me. I, I wonder why. Everyone is like my brother or my sister. I can't seem to get out of the friend zone. And I'll be very honest with you. Get over it. Get, who cares about the friend zone? What's wrong with dating your friend? Listen, I married my best friend. Honestly, sometimes I think I married my only friend. So it's okay, <laughs> all right? Anyway, let's go back to this. God's unwillingness to accept the ingenuous offerings of Israel, it was because of the flippancy with which they took that marriage vow. You know, from first who they married in the first place, they were looking at God people who worship a foreign God, to their decision to forego the covenant that they had entered into. They had their own version of no-fault divorces back then. To the third thing, deciding to not have godly offspring. In verse 15, it says this, Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. And I'll tell you, that one was hard for me as I was reading it, for me and Suzette. I've mentioned before, Suzette and I, we cannot have children of our own. So I read this, and it, it made me pause. But the way I look at this is that the offspring here has to be so much more than just our biological children. I take that to mean you are our offspring. My responsibility, our responsibility as husband and wife is to raise up our church family. And if you're willing, basically you guys are my kids because you're young enough to be my kids. For the sake of time, I'm not going to go any deeper into the nuances and the expectations of the truth that Malachi is preaching regarding marriage, because there are nuances. There are other things regarding marriage. But let me summarize it this way. Marriage 
For those of you who are called to be married, not everyone is, but marriage is a sacred act. It's a holy covenant between, where the Spirit of God dwells within that union. And to take it lightly to separate that union, it is an act of violence against each other and against God. There's another question in here in chapter 3, verse 8 to 13, uh, that we're not going to dive into too much. Let me just say this. Malachi talks about how we rob God by not returning to him that which is his already with our tithes and offerings. Uh, Let me just say one thing about that, about giving to God. What we have, what we've earned, is on loan from God now. Whether it's your money, your time, your abilities, we're just managing God, God's stuff. So returning it back to the owner, we should be ready for that. We should not be surprised by it. But I do want to focus on one last question today. And that's from chapter 2, verse 17. The people of Israel ask, how have we wearied you, God? In verse 17, it says this, you have wearied the Lord with your words. But, But you say, how have we wearied him? By saying... Everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? Now, I'll I'll, I'll be very honest with you. I have a little bit of trouble with the idea that I might actually be annoying God, that I might be making him weary. Because God is infinitely patient. God is infinitely merciful. But God is also infinitely just. So though God's mercy has no end, nor does his justice, at some point, God's infinite justice and his infinite mercy will meet and there will be judgment. And God wants his beloved to understand that the God of justice has and is and will always be here. This line of questioning, it continues on in chapter 3. The people end up asking, how have we spoken against you, God. God answers by saying he is wearied by the people, saying that it's useless to serve God. Verse 14 says, you have said it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? When those who profane God, when those who seek evil, when like white supremacists, when racists, when sexists, when whatever group goes against, name that group and that goes against God, name them. And when they seem to be the ones taking charge, getting all the power, running the world around us, when this happens and when our response is, why bother? That wearies God. But we bother because of the passage that Lizzie read for us today. And let me read it again. Verse 16, Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. And the Lord paid attention, and he heard them, and a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession, and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Then once more, you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. 
I'm going to ask the band to go ahead and make their way up. We bother because we are God's. We bother because we are the beloved of God because of Christ alone. We bother because we are set apart. We bother because we are a royal priesthood. We bother because we are the ones who will be distinct from the world because we will serve our God. In spite of how the world looks at us or treats us, how it reviles us, or how we look like we might be losing Because we, as a body of believers, as a family united together in this embassy, in this heavenly outpost for our upside-down kingdom, we bother because we are beloved. And this is the hope Malachi leaves Israel as a world prepared for the coming of the Messiah. And this is the hope Malachi leaves with us as we prepare for the return of our king. Thank you for tuning in to this week's COTB Sermon Podcast. For more info or to connect with us, you can visit our website at cotb.life. God bless and have a great week.